I grew up in western Pennsylvania in the 70s, and football was everything there. I was the youngest of three boys, and if you really wanted to get the attention of my dad or get the attention of anybody in our community, it came through football. There were no other options for young men to play. They had to play football. And as I'm older now, I reflect back on that. Why was it so important to everybody in our community that they participate in the high school football program, that they follow the college programs of Pitt or Penn State, and this hold that the Pittsburgh Steelers had and still has on Western Pennsylvania is incredibly deep. And I'm really interested in studying the history of that. Mm -hmm. I'm also interested in the 70s, my favorite sport in the world, and it was kind of under the table because everybody loved football so much, but was baseball. And I fell in love with the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates. Baseball, when I was growing up, was a very social sport. Baseball is about the in-between time. You know, there's 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 a pitch every 60 seconds or so. You're in the dugout. You're up to bat every I don't know hour and 15 minutes, and so you got to handle the in-between time in baseball. And so it's a very social sport. You become very close to your teammates. You have to have conversations in unusual situations, whether it's a dugout, whether it's a bus traveling to or from a game, whether it's at a restaurant. And you become close in ways that you don't become close in other sports. And that feeling of home, that feeling of togetherness, that feeling of, in 1979, the Pirates were nicknamed the family. That feeling of family is something that's really unique to the game of baseball and I think was really attractive to the immigrant culture mm -hmm. in the mid 20th century. Football is not a very social sport. Football is a high pressure sport, a sport where you feel like I can't let my teammate down. Like a more militaristic in that you don't want to be the weak link. You you need to set the tempo, not be the last guy in line. In football, there's such pressure to do your job and, and fit in and be the cog in this wheel that football for me, from age, from the seventh grade all the way through the NFL, has really been high pressure high anxiety that I don't want to, one, let down my teammates by not doing my job, two, frankly, let down our community. And when you grow up in Pittsburgh, our community was the borough of Oakmont. I didn't want to let them down. When you 
calling plays in Chicago, your community is the entire city of Chicago. You don't want to let the people of that city down. That's a completely different feeling than I ever felt playing baseball. Baseball was so relaxed and football was so intense and high-pressured. And frankly, there's a degree of, of, of fear always in football. And there's a degree of freedom in freedom. baseball. Yeah. And more relaxed. Yeah. What does that say about American culture and how, you know, the, the kind of mentalities and behaviors that have really formed us for generations? You know, this kind of fear and conformity is a big part. We, we see it today. We see how fear can take hold of communities and whole demographics of people and affect everything. And then this kind of bias toward conformity or the superiority of one way of doing things. You learn that and relearn it, and it becomes a deep part of you. These sports help to kind of entrench that. And then this other part of American culture that's more about being your own person or freedom or relationships or, you know, kind of this toss salad that America is, all these different people from all kinds of different places calling this home. It's really a neat thing to think about how this these sports embody these different values and aspirations that we have as a culture, but also these fear-based or anxiety-based things that we feel that we've got to have and we've got to make sure everybody gets this, especially the men in the culture, um, so that we can kind of hold on to what it is that we hold dear. Welcome to Going Deep, sports in the 21st century on Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Dr. Marsha Mountshoop. And I'm Coach John Shoup. John's coached at the highest levels of the game of football for 26 years. And Marcia is an author, theologian, and minister. And we're glad you've joined us to go deep into some of the most pressing issues of our time. On Going Deep, we go beyond the sound bites and highlight reels. Bush, the producer for Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century. Today's episode digs back deep through our archives for two shows that still sound just as new as they did when we recorded them three years ago. First, we go back to September of 2018 for our show about the origins of the three major sports in the United States. There's a man that I know that I met at Baylor University when I was there for um, a symposium on sports. And his address to the symposium was one of the most engaging that I thought of the whole um, event. Um, and he, as a historian, is looking into what gave rise in American culture to these three sports. He, he kind of tells their birth story and links it to what was going on. And that's Dr. Randall Balmer professor at Dartmouth College, and um, I'm really excited that he is going to join us on this episode of Going Deep. I think you're going to like him a lot. Let's call him. Hello? 
Hi, Dr. Balmer. Yes, hi. Hi, this is Marsha Mountshute calling you from Asheville, North Carolina. Hi, Marsha. How are you? I'm hey. good. How are you? And this is my husband, John Mountshute. Hey, how are hi, you? Hi, John. How's it going? <laughs> good. Nice to talk to both of you. So, welcome, Dr. Balmer, to Going Deep. We're so excited to have you today. So, um, Dr. Randall Balmer um, is the John Phillips Professor in Religion at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. He is a prolific writer. He has um, written on everything from sports in America to evangelical movements and muscular Christianity um, and all sorts of things. He's been um, somebody who's uh, written in all kinds of academic journals from and also and newspapers like the New York Times, Washington Post, and he's even been on the Stephen Colbert show. So um, we're very excited to have you here on Going Deep. Dr. Balmer, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And I wonder if you, because you have done such a broad range of things and you've been a voice, um, especially in the last several years around kind of the the dynamics of evangelicalism in the United States. If you want to tell our listeners a little bit about some of some of your work that you've been doing of late that feels that you feel really passionate about or that really interests you. <laughs> well, uh, I, I suppose what I've been doing the last ten or twenty years really is looking into the origins of the religious right because it's a movement that is so shape the political landscape as well as the religious landscape in the United States. And so I spent a lot of time on that. Uh, One of my recent books was a biography of Jimmy Carter, who really, in many ways, represented the beginnings of the evangelical presence in the political arena, that is the late 20th century beginnings. And, of course, one of history's greatest ironies is that uh, the very people who put him into office in 1976 as president turned dramatically against him four years later. And I've spent uh, at least a decade trying to figure out why that was and uh, the circumstances surrounding that uh, that uh, about-face on the part of American evangelicals. So that's those are some of the questions I'm interested in. But, uh, oh, I'm interested in all sorts of things, uh, uh, sports, which we're about to talk about. I'm also doing a project on the Orthodox Church in Alaska, both a documentary and a book, hmm. and uh, well, lots of things. <laughs> well, your work really is fascinating, and I think it, it intersects in a very profound way with, with sports in this country, because sports and Christianity have a very um, deep and long-lasting relationship in this country, as we will talk about um, today together. So it, it particularly fascinates me how so many of these questions are erupting around us today, around um, the protests in football, around immigration, and the way those things are, those questions are just becoming so much more polarized. So we hope that as we move through the, our conversation today that we can take some of the fascinating historical work that you've done and draw some lines to kind of what we see happening today. And we'd like to start with football. So that's why right. I'm, I'm passing the ball to John now. Well, uh, <laughs> well, here's my 
one of the questions that I have, um, you talk about the origins of the religious right. I kind of want to talk about the origins of the game of football, and specifically, sure. you know, after the Civil War, football gained popularity in the Northeast on the college scene. Rutgers and Princeton played the first game in 1869. After World War II, the NFL kind of took root and started growing uh, in the mid-20th century to what it is today. Can you talk a little bit about generations of men after a war and kind of what that has to do with football and maybe specifically where we are today in this post-9-11, post-desert storm, Afghanistan and Iraq wars? What's striking to me about the game of football is that it's a military game. It's a quintessential military game that is concerned with, as you know better than I, John, the, the conquest and the defense of territory. And what's striking to me about football is that it really began to become popular, as you said, in the Northeast and it was played by the sons and the nephews of Civil War generals who were at places like Princeton and Rutgers and later Yale, of course, gets into it in a big way. Dartmouth in a little bit different way and Harvard and so forth. And what's striking to me about it is that it's, it's a replication of a military game. And even within the game itself, it has changed over the years. Now, uh, even within your career, I expect you've noticed these changes. Which, uh, after World War II, when the war was fought very much like World War I in the, in the trenches, that is to say, uh, tank warfare. You think of General Patton, for example, George Patton, who was uh, such a, a singular figure in World War II. Tank warfare, this is what was his, uh, uh, his way of doing warfare. And when we get into the Vietnam War, and later, as you say, with Desert Storm and, and the recent wars, it's been far much more an air hmm. warfare uh, with planes and drones and so forth. And I think that's reflected in how the game of football is played. That is to it's say, uh, think about uh, you know uh, Vince Lombardi and the Green Bay Packers. You know, uh, every play was. Uh, was a running play, or three out of four, or probably more than that, five out of six plays were running plays. And you had these uh, kind of clash uh, of titans there on the line, very similar to tank warfare. Mm -hmm. I was just uh, preparing a lecture and uh, touching on Super Bowl three, for example. And in 1967, uh, I'm sorry, 69, Super Bowl three, Joe Namath, the MVP for the New York Jets, who, of course, upset the Baltimore Colts in that game. Joe Namath did not throw a single pass in the fourth quarter of that game. Hmm. It was, even then, a game, a game that was conducted uh, on, on the ground. That, if you look at the NFL sure. today, and, and you have more than I, certainly, and you can attest to this or not, it is a game that really is a passing game. Just as warfare has... Hmm evolved since World War II to the present into primarily air, airplane warfare and drones and so forth. So, too, the game of football is 
uh, a game on the air. Uh, I'm fascinated with the idea of the of the uh, quarterback as a field general, to use military terminology, and he throws bullet passes and long bombs. This is all military terminology mm-hmm. that reinforces the, the notion of football as a military game. listening to going deep on blue ridge public radio we'll be right back welcome back to going deep sports in the 21st century from the studios of blue ridge public radio i'm matt bush the producer of the program we continue our dip into going deep's archives with john and marcia talking to dr randall balmer of dartmouth college about the origins of american football and how it follows the u.s military a conversation recorded in september 2018 after the Civil War is a brand of football. After World War II is a brand of football. And the brand of football today is the spread offenses. If you're not a passing quarterback and not throwing it 50 or at least 45 times a game, you really don't have much worth. And so when you look at military and football, which comes first? Perhaps the military does, as you're saying. <laughs> it probably does. And I think that's that's really, really uh, interesting to me. Yeah, Thank you. that is. That's fascinating. I I think also just the 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 violence of the game um, yeah. is an interesting conversation right now. John and I have been really involved in the in the conversation around traumatic head injuries, and we've we've tried to engage the NFL and the NCAA and um, you know, high school football associations as well around doing more prevention, changing the way they practice, looking at what kind of, you know, sub-concussive hits create brain damage, even when somebody's not been diagnosed with a concussion. And there's so much resistance to changing the game, quote-unquote, taking the big hits away, taking the you know, the kind of line of scrimmage away where people are banging heads. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to just that that football really, it was born out of violence (laughs) or sort of, and and, and how you see this conversation right now um, going in this contemporary moment where some players have used their platform to protest violence in the larger um, culture with police violence and how that has really there's been a sort of vehement backlash against that yeah. even from the president of the United States talk a little bit about just how how closely knit together are violence and football is there any football without violence and I, well I don't think so I mean again I probably defer to John on that question but uh, you know it it's it's part of the DNA of the game I think in many ways there's a uh, and, and it's no accident it it seems to me that some of the early powers in the early days of of football were the military academies mm-hmm. they're the ones that who described uh, football as a game of war. There's some really bellicose language used to describe what football was was all about. So it's it's part of uh, of the culture, and I think one of the reasons that football is so popular is because it is violent, and we live in a violent culture.
the, these questions of kind of the, um, you know, this really deep primal way in which violence and American culture go hand in hand is deeply connected to masculinity. And you've done a lot sure. of work on muscular Christianity. Sure. And one of the things that really interested me in in the um, the lecture I heard you give at Baylor a few years ago is just how muscular Christianity is um, really a really important part of the way football, basketball, and hockey all kind of came into their own. And just recently, I feel like we've had some interesting snapshots um, from some big-time coaches in football that are, you know, sort of echoing some of that muscular Christianity. I mean, Jim Harbaugh at Michigan said, and I quote, I love football. Love it, love it. I think it's the last bastion of hope for toughness in America in men, in males. And then Larry (laughs) Fedora said, our game is under attack. I fear that the game will be pushed so far from what we know that we won't recognize it 10 years from now. And if it does, the country will go down too. So what do you hear in those in those um, kind of clarion calls around masculinity and protecting it? Sure. I, I think it, it's, it's part of the whole, uh, as you say, the whole muscular Christianity movement, which began to take hold in both Britain and America in the, uh, in the 19th century, middle of the 19th century. And it was a response to what was perceived as uh, the faith, Christianity becoming too effeminate, uh, too feminized. And so... There was a, a conscious attempt to link sports and athletics to the faith and to, to Christianity, and that's uh, that connection has been there, I think, ever, ever since. I, and I think one of the reasons in the, in the late 20th century that sports took off the way it did, and I'm thinking about sports radio and and uh, you know all, you know these, these cable channels that are devoted entirely to sports. Uh, it's it's really a male preserve for the most part, and mm-hmm. I think part of the reason for that was there was a sense on the part of many American males that the society, the culture had passed them by. The feminism was somehow crippling them. That they were the ones who were not being recognized in the larger society. They were not ones who were being handicapped uh, by affirmative action and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think. What sports offers to American men, particularly white American men, is a, a kind of alternative universe hmm. where the rules are fixed and they are impartially enforced, unlike the larger world. When I lived in New York, I used to listen to sports radio. First, as kind of just a curiosity, I couldn't believe that there were whole whole stations devoted to this sort of thing. Uh, and, and and what what struck me was the peculiar passion that these uh, callers uh, demonstrated about sports. And nothing riled Vinny from Queens <laughs> more than a blown call from the officials. Yeah, and it was a. a it was kind of a moral affront, almost. And I got to thinking about it, and, and what what sports offers in American life, it seems to me, is the closest thing we have to a meritocracy. That is to say, if you are not 
talented athletically, if you haven't developed certain skills for a particular game, you're not going to succeed. And again, John knows this better than I. But sports, at least in the mythology of the American male, is, again, using these metaphors that have become so common, a level playing field where everyone approaches it equally. And what's striking to me about sports is that there are clear lines of demarcation. You think about the foul and fair lines in a baseball diamond. Uh, you think about uh, the, the gridiron on a, on a football field uh, with uh, what is inbounds and what is out of bounds. It's, it's a universe that is kind of exquisitely uh, maintained, where the boundaries are maintained as well. And I think that's important. So the attraction for white American males, particularly in the end of the 20th century and now into the 21st century, is that sports offers this alternative universe where everything is ordered and everything is fair. Uh, you, when, when a batter takes strike three, he doesn't turn to the umpire and say, you know, um, I've had a tough day. Uh, <laughs> my sister was just diagnosed with uh, with cancer. Uh, I haven't been uh, able to sleep over the last week. Can't you give me another strike out of out of God of compassion? I've, you just I've don't tried do that. to ask some <laughs> officials for that before. I've worked the officials in that very way. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> One of the things John and I are really interested in are kind of the race, the way that race shows up in sports. Um, the interesting thing of looking at the difference between the NFL and the NBA in terms of racial integration, the NBA is, has many more um, kind of marks of racial equity than the NFL. The NFL is more right. about conformity. There, there are no African-American majority owners in football of a football team. Right. And in, in the NBA, there are more black head coaches. There are more um, black fans. You know, Michael Jordan is, a, is an owner. And how right. um, you talk about how basketball came up in, in a kind of setting in which the invitation was, how can we in this constrained space do this game, this activity <laughs> together without sure. violence? And it's interesting to think about how that more urban setting has been more conducive, perhaps, to racial integration than maybe some of the other sports. Well, I think it has. And, and you talked about the the presence of African-Americans in basketball, not only in, as players, but as uh, uh, fans and, and, and owners. That is a reflection, at least in part, on the fact that basketball is the quintessential urban game. Mm -hmm. And it was devised, as I'm sure you know, by James Naismith, who was a student at the YMCA training school, which is now Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts. And he was asked by his mentor, Luther Gulick, to come up with a game to occupy young men between the football and the baseball seasons. And it had to be an indoor game, of course, because of the weather. 
And he devised, that is, uh, Naismith devised this remarkable game that I think perfectly mimics the urban landscape. That is, the whole idea of the game is to maneuver within a very constricted space, such as you have in the cities, and to do so without impeding the progress of of, uh, other players. Mm -hmm. And the early games of basketball, as I'm sure you know, were sometimes played with 50 players on a team. It was that (laughs) crowded and that congested, and yet you had this system of rules that forbid players from from impeding the others by the system of fouls and so forth. Now, you think look at NBA games today or college games today, and you wonder <laughs> wonder about that. <laughs> but uh, the innovation that Naismith offered was that players could not run with the ball without bouncing it. And uh, his quote was, if he can't run with the ball, we don't have to tackle. And if we don't have to tackle, the roughness will be eliminated. So that was part of the whole idea behind the game of basketball which is, is interesting game which is interesting because Naismith played football I think he was a center for like seven years or something at, he at probably, McGill yes that's right yeah. yeah he was probably searching for a respite something <laughs> a little bit easier that's on right. the bones huh <laughs> that's right The great postscript to Naismith's uh, career is that uh, he went on to become both the head basketball coach as well as the chaplain, and here's muscular Christianity illustrated in one man, at the University of Kansas. And he is the only coach in the history of the University of Kansas with a losing record. How about oh, that? Interesting. He should have changed the rules to make sure he got that win. <laughs> we had talked earlier about how the game of football kind of follows the lead of the military from run first to now pass and through the air. It's interesting, perhaps socially, sports do precede the rest of the world because wasn't Jackie Robinson playing in the Harlem Globetrotters were in existence before Truman even integrated yes. the military, that's right. if I'm correct. That's right. Now, that, that's, uh, that's an, in, uh, an instance where uh, sports uh, led cultural changes yeah. before politics uh, caught up with it. Yes, absolutely. Well, how about, how about the Harlem Globetrotters and the integration racially of the game of basketball? Yes, the the Harlem Globetrotters played several games, and I, I'm blanking on the on who they played. It was either the Minneapolis Lakers or Chicago team, the, the NBA team. I think it was the and Lakers and George Mikan, wasn't it? I, I believe it was. I, I'm sorry, I should have that information <laughs> at my fingertips, but I don't. And uh, it was a, a series of exhibition games, and it turned out that the Harlem Globetrotters, who of course were black, were able to uh, beat the NBA teams, and uh, that is uh, one of the major events that led to the integration of the National Basketball Association. There's a story similar in the SEC of Bear Bryant uh, being the first coach in the SEC to integrate the University of Alabama's football team. One year, he invited the University of Southern California in the 60s to come to Tuscaloosa and play a game. 
and the University of Southern Cal had a tailback named Sam Cunningham. Sam Bam Cunningham. And yep. Cunningham ran up and down the field all over the Crimson Tide. <laughs> and they say that Bear Bryant did that as a point to all the boosters and the powers that be that if Alabama is going to maintain their dominance in football, they too are going to have to recruit people of color. And lo and behold, the next year, Alabama did. things I really love about um, your historical treatment of of these of the early kind of emergence of sports in American culture is the way you use symbols and the symbology of yeah. you know the basketball court the football field and I love your description of baseball and, and <laughs> how it connects to the immigrant experience can you just share some of that with our listeners I just think it's it's kind of beautiful as a theologian I I love it as a baseball player <laughs> I love it yeah. Yeah, all right there you go well of course baseball is God's game, as we all know, because uh, Genesis 1-1, it says, in the big inning, God created the heaven and the earth. So baseball game was already underway at that point. Uh, The origins of baseball, of course, uh, have been uh, shrouded in myth for many, many decades. Uh, The first reference we have, the earliest reference at this point, is in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. What baseball represents, it seems to me, is the immigrant experience. If you talk about sports, uh, the ball represents the world. And baseball is the only game, first of all, that has no clock. So it's really a pre-industrial revolution game. That is, it, yes. it, it really kind of thumbs its nose at the industrial revolution. As a, and as you're aware, there are all sorts of conversations going on these days about how baseball needs to mm-hmm. speed up and so forth. And I think there's probably something to those arguments. But baseball historically has not worried itself about time. So it's a kind of game out of time in that respect. But it's the only game where the defense controls the ball. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind the batter or the offensive player is to disrupt the defense's control of the ball or the world. The batter is at a tremendous disadvantage because it's nine against one. Mm-hmm. And they are arranged in such a way that they perfectly or uh, demonically almost uh, thwart the ability of the batter to disrupt the defense's control of the game or the world. Mm. And a batter who's successful in doing so three times out of ten will likely end up in the Hall of Fame. That's how great the odds are. And that, of course, perfectly mimics the immigrant experience. They come over to this country, and the odds are against them. Uh, The world is against them. And there are three islands of safety out in that larger, hostile world, first base, second base, and third base. And, of course, the the greatest triumph is to return home, uh, which, of course, an immigrant wants to do to be able to brag about his success and so forth. It's a poetic game, I think, in many ways. And it's also true that baseball, historically, to the present, immigrants have been the most effective players. 
Hmm. Uh, yes. It started out with uh, you know Dutch immigrants and and uh, uh, German immigrants uh, in in the 19th century, uh, Italians and, and so forth. Joe DiMaggio, for example. But now, of course, it uh, tends to be Latino pr- players, uh, mm-hmm. Dominicans and, and others, who excel at the game of baseball. It's so fascinating right now to think about these ethnic and racial layers of baseball when. Um, most baseball fans in this country are white. Um, yes. You know, baseball stadiums are full of white fans. Just recently, a professional player's tweets from when he was 17 kind of unearthed, and they were very racist. And so he got some heat about that in the press. And then the next game, he came out and got a standing ovation in the stadium. Mm. And there's been some press about that. Like, what does this say about baseball um, and how, you know, kind of who is enjoying the game, who is playing the game, and what yep. what is this game in terms of American culture and, and how it holds a mirror up to who we are? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I'm not sure I have an answer to that uh, question, Marcia, but and, and I would add to that, you know, what does it say that baseball is now suffering in popularity? Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that tell us about uh, our regard for immigrants? It, it, it's a complicated question. And I'm not sure exactly how to answer it, to be honest. Yeah, I'm not either. At Baylor, I asked a question about just the commodification of bodies and how easy that is in American capitalist culture for people's bodies to become commodities and therefore valued um, for their performance or for their monetary value, sure. their, their ability to generate profit. Um, we, we certainly saw that in our time in professional football, that you're a commodity, and if you're in no college football, college football, and you're you're a sure. commodity that's not paid a fair wage in college football, but um, the this kind of way that I guess this has been underneath our whole conversation today, what how the tail wags the dog or the dog wags the tail in terms of how sports reflect and refract. American culture. You know, the commodification, and again, John can speak to this personally, (laughs) you have these uh, athletes who are highly touted and uh, have all this uh, great ability and the one injury and they're they're nothing. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking about Booby Miles in um, H.G. Bissinger's Friday Night Lights. Oh, yes, yes. uh, And the tragedy (laughs) there, a person who had all the athletic gifts that anyone could want and nothing else, in a sense. And uh, when he comes up lame, he's just uh, cast aside and forgotten, largely. But And, you know, the NFL, I'm sure you saw many cases of this uh, as well in yeah. the course of your career. Well, and while you were at Baylor, you used a phrase that just really stuck with me. And you said, the unholy trinity of athletics, Christianity, and money. And boy, that, that image really struck struck me when you said it. You're right. There's so many stories, not just the ones that are shared in Friday Night Lights, but just thousands, whether it's high school, uh, college, or professional of players that yeah. have just yeah. been commodified and, and mm-hmm. lost. And then thrown out 
to the garbage. And, and as you suggested earlier, there's a there's a racial component to this as well. I, I guess I keep thinking it's been decades since I read it, but uh, one of the opening scenes in uh, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man, when uh, when a couple of black kids are thrust into a, a boxing ring and start punching with one another, and the white fans you know throw money into the boxing arena, and the boxers try to you know, collect the money and so forth, but it, it's just a, it's it's an arena of self what flagellation almost sure. uh, for the enjoyment of in this case uh, a white audience. Those are our hosts, John and Marsha Mountshoop, speaking with Dr. Randall Balmer of Dartmouth College in September of 2018. We'll return to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century after the short break on Blue Ridge Public Radio. Welcome back to Going Deep Sports in the 21st Century from the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio. I'm Matt Bush, the producer of the program. We conclude this dip into our archives with another conversation that will feel very topical right now. December is when the so-called coaching carousel takes off in football. And if you've paid attention in the last two weeks, it's reached new levels. Our hosts have experienced what this is like firsthand. And in December 2018, John and Marsha told me carousel isn't the right carnival ride to compare this to. So for us, it's always been more like the coaching roller coaster. I think carousel, you know, suggests kind of this easy, mundane, you know, think kind of predictable thing. But for coaches and coaches' families, it's it really is. It's an emotional roller coaster. It's stressful whether you're on a winning team or a losing team or a middle-of-the-road team. I mean, there really is no such thing as a year when you're not somehow impacted. I mean, even even us out of it now can feel it and are impacted by it in different ways. Um, so for us, roller coaster fits much better than carousel. It, it's a roller coaster indeed, even when you have good seasons when you have good seasons you've got this tug and this pull or this lure towards other jobs that you might be considered for that are going to offer you more money maybe a better situation and you're weighing all those situations of okay would i move my family for that or the situation of if you're an assistant is your head coach going to take another job um you know, a, a really good friend of mine was a head coach at Colorado State, Jim McElwain, and got promoted, if that's the word you want to use, to being the head coach at the University of Florida. And when he went to Florida, none of the assistants from Colorado State went with him. And so all of those guys were out of a job. And so the roller coaster is not just for teams that are worried about son of a gun, we didn't have a great season, are they going to fire us? The roller coaster is also like, son of a gun, we had a pretty good season. Is our head coach going to leave for another job? And or am I going to have to consider another job? Right. Um, you know, it, it it was really not funny. But, I mean, interesting to me. I, I now teach high school at A.C. Reynolds High School, or teach history at A.C. Reynolds High School. And we lost our third-round playoff game last week to Mount Tabor. And I was driving home 
from the game with my daughter, who's a freshman in high school. And she said to me the entire game, Dad, I was just cringing. I had this feeling of, oh, my gosh, are we going to have to move now? We're losing a football game. Are we going to have to move? And, and I literally, I stopped the car, and I said, we could go 0-10 here at A.C. Reynolds High School, and we're not moving. We're not moving. And so I think when people talk about this coaching carousel, they talk about these coaches leaving, moving all over the place. There's a lot of collateral damage. There's a lot of issues that people don't consider, and that's just a situation that punched me in the gut the other day. Yeah, and I think, too, like the coaching, you know, that term carousel also, it makes it – almost playful and this is what people are gossiping about and what people are talking about um if anybody thinks that old women are the worst gossips in the world they have never been around football coaches at this time of year (laughs) i can tell you that i mean starting at the end of october ish when stuff starts to be fomenting john would be getting phone call after phone call and I'd hear him in the other room going hey have you heard anything no have you heard anything I mean and it's just like frantic texting and all this stuff and again you can be in a good situation a bad situation no situation I mean even this year John's gotten phone calls and stuff and it's just it's it, it and that it, it is like old ladies gossiping (laughs) you know whispering in the back room to see if anybody's got any scoop on anything i have tried to like not i've taken off all those feeds on my twitter feed like football scoop and all that stuff because just it is it's like this visceral memory of i'm gonna have to take my kids out of school i'm gonna have to find a new job we're gonna have to sell our house or whatever or or some of our friends are gonna have to leave you know neighbors asking you every day if you've heard anything it it's it's stressful for everybody the other people that people often don't think about at this time of year is is players players are deeply impacted by this whole thing. It's not a game for them either. It's their life. It's the school they decided to go to. There are very few players who decide to go to a school just because of that school. They go because a coach recruited them, because they wanted to work with that coach, because that coach made them promises. And I think for people, listeners of the show, if they heard those particular shows that you did with Pat and Robinette, they will know that. If they haven't, I certainly suggest they go back and listen to that because you went into that with him, with Pat and Robinette, about his time at Vanderbilt. He played Mm -hmm. for James Franklin, who is now the head coach at Penn State, and that was at the time where Coach Franklin left Vanderbilt to go to Penn State. Uh, And you heard it in his voice when he was discussing, like, it's Mm -hmm. very stressful. We didn't begrudge him being able to leave, but that was why he went to go play. One of the reasons he went to go play at Vanderbilt. Right, and then they can't leave. They can't leave so easily. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they have a whole different set of rules, and and they have a whole different set of limitations. Um, the other piece that people don't often think about 
And there's some really good examples of some of these situations that we could talk about more deeply is what hits the news is a head coach and his big buyout and his, you know, six more years he had on his contract or something. But for assistant coaches, more and more, even just in the 26 years that John coached, assistant coaches' contracts were getting shorter and shorter and shorter with less and less guaranteed money, less and less cushion. And some people might listen to that and say, well, too bad. I don't have a contract. I don't get paid if I get fired. Well, you're also probably not in a um, profession that demands this kind of like instant relocation. Um, you're not work. Maybe you're not working 18 hours a day, seven days a week. I mean, there are lots of demands about this job that sometimes you do need a little cushion because you might have to sit out of year, determining on the depending on the timing of the firing. But head coaches get these big buyouts, and assistant coaches don't. They also don't have the same kind of mobility as a head coach. They're sort of waiting to see if, you know, where a head coach they might have a connection to lands. And they might not land anywhere. It's like a game of musical chairs. Mm -hmm. And the later you are in the roller coaster season, the less likely you are to land anywhere, really. Would you say that's correct? Well, certainly it's exactly like a game of musical chairs. And when the music or the hiring stops, you want to be left with a, a, a spot. It's interesting, in the coaching profession, there's a couple of times where I never dreamt we would go live in that place. And I'm thinking of Oakland specifically. Uh, when I went to work for the Oakland Raiders, we were interviewing at a few different places and had some options. And I never dreamt we would live in the Bay Area. It never even crossed my mind. But as the music was starting to settle, that ended up being the place that we're like, holy moly, this we're actually moving to Oakland now. We're moving our entire family across the entire country, four time zones to Oakland. And we ended up loving living out there for a spell in many ways. Mm -hmm. And so there is an adventuresome, you know, part of it. But as your kids grow older, um, it gets really, really hard. I can remember after my first year in West Lafayette at Purdue, I thought to myself, we're going to struggle here. I, I didn't have real fond feelings for our head coach. And I thought, even after our first year, before our first year, I thought professionally this might not have been the best move I could make. I don't think our head coach can get it done, and therefore, you know, I'll be susceptible. And I had a chance to leave to go to an SEC school after our first year at Purdue. And we had just built a house. We had a farm. Uh, our kids just got settled into school. And, and they I, were happy. And they were happy. And I just recruited a quarterback who's the star quarterback for Purdue right now. And I thought to myself, I, I was offered a heck of a lot more money at a, a SEC school. And I thought to myself, I, 
I need to try to make this work here for my family, uh, for the young men who, who I recruited. And I, I could see the writing on the wall that this was going to be an uphill battle. And I think that's uncommon. I, I think we see coaches just jump around so much looking for this perfect job instead of trying to make the job where they are a really good one. And frankly, the situation at Purdue, I failed to make that job a really good one. I don't know that it was any fault of my own. I think I did everything that I could, but that lure, that lure to move, that lure of of money, of bigger jobs is it's seductive. And well, it's it's not just seductive. I mean, I I hear what you're saying, but it's I mean, I understand why people do what they do. I understand why people jump ship. There isn't a lot of loyalty. There's no um, guarantees. And I mean, families just kind of like resign themselves like this is our life. We're moving a lot. And um, and I think you're right. It's rare for people to make a decision to stay. And the hard truth of that is it doesn't pay off. It rarely pays off to make that kind of choice. And we made it several times, and I think we we feel good about those decisions in terms of our moral conscience and the way we our values hit the ground in our life. But those probably weren't good professional well, decisions. <laughs> at, at North Carolina, we didn't take a head coaching job to stay in the next year our head coach got fired Mm -hmm. i can remember speaking with jay smith and jay smith is a professor at the university of north carolina and a guy that's had a loud voice uh uh, uh, against some of the the ncaa and the academic fraud that's gone on at north carolina and when i talked to jay i said i would trade a six-figure, seven-figure salary in a heartbeat for an opportunity to gain tenure, which you have, Jay. And um, I've thought of that a lot, you know, on college campuses, that some of these professors have tenure. I'd rather have tenure and and make a modest salary than a huge salary in every single year wonder are we going to have to move? Yeah, you're always good or bad season. You're always a provisional member of the community, and you know that. Inevitably, you see people being like, "Well, the university's paying all this money to fire somebody, and you know, faculty doesn't get this money, or whoever doesn't get this money." I want you to stop and think about it for a minute. If a university is willing to basically flush $12 million down the toilet, how much money does that mean they're getting through this business venture called Collegiate Revenue Sports? Okay, that needs, instead of shifting right into the script of that's not fair for faculty, for think about... The players, the players who don't, not only do they not get a dime when everything's going well, they don't get a dime when everything goes down the tubes and they can't transfer without penalty. 
They can't, they can't pick up the pieces. I mean, even though we, you know, didn't have huge buyouts when, in the unfortunate times when we were, you know, forced to make a decision, to make a change, we're going to be okay. We, we had saved money. We had had an opportunity to accumulate both social capital and financial capital in, in the business. Players don't have that. And so if, if you want to go into the pity party of it's not fair for the you know, English professor in the school, think about the commodities of the players that are generating this money and watch a coach get $12 million for getting fired and they don't know if they're going to have a meal card anymore because they don't know if the coach is going to come in, the new coach will come in and maybe not want to use that. Um, so there's a lot of insecurity that just ripples out from all this. Some things have changed since that conversation in December 2018, but how much really have they? That could be the topic of a new going deep in the coming months. Thank you for joining us today. You can hear the two episodes that we pulled this one from, Origin Stories and the Coaching Roller Coaster, in full anytime with the free BPR mobile app or through Apple or Google Podcasts. Make sure you subscribe to Going Deep, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at Shoops Going Deep. And if you want to reach out to us for questions, feedback, show ideas, or anything on your mind, send us an email to goingdeep at bpr.org. Thank you so much for listening to us in 2021. We hope this holiday season brings rest, comfort, and joy to you and to all of us. We'll be back with you on Going Deep in 2022.